0: In New Mexico, before World War II, Catholic sisters in full habits routinely taught in public schools. In her fascinating new book, Religious Lessons, Catholic Sisters in the Captured Schools Crisis in New Mexico, published by Oxford University Press in 2012, Dr. Kathleen Holscher explores how this curious situation arose and how this partnership between public schools and female religious orders was brought to an end by the court case Zellers v. Huff. Through a sensitive and rich exploration of diverse sources, including trial transcripts and her own interviews, Holscher captures the complex ways people in New Mexico and the wider United States understood religious freedom and the proper relationship between church and state, while constructing a fascinating and ultimately moving narrative of division and reconciliation. I hope you'll enjoy the interview. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rauch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Kathleen Holscher about her new book, Religious Lessons, Catholic Sisters in the Captured Schools Crisis in New Mexico. Uh, Katie, welcome to the show. Hi,
1: thanks for having me.
0: Oh, thank you me. so much for joining us. Oh, sorry. got you there. Well, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, I am an assistant professor of American Studies and Religious Studies, and I hold an endowed chair in Roman Catholic Studies at the University of New Mexico, which is in Albuquerque. Um, I have been there for about four years. And before that, I taught in the theology department at Villanova University, which is a Catholic Augustinian institution outside of Philadelphia. And um, let's see. Um, my, I'm sort of moving backwards. But um, my Ph.D., uh, I got my Ph.D. in 2008 from Princeton University. And uh, my BA before that uh, from Swarthmore College, which is also outside of Philadelphia. Um, I'm originally I grew up in Northwest Indiana, right outside of Gary, and uh, sort of yeah. I think I'll
0: I think I'll leave it there. <laughs> all right, I, I didn't know that I'm a native Hoosier, oh, but yeah. I'm from the Central.
1: Oh, all right, yeah, yeah. I, I'm originally I was born in New York State, but um, but we moved outside of Gary when I was about three, so I spent a good long time in Indiana.
0: Oh, excellent. We always like um, how the, you know, the movie, The Christmas Story is set in Gary, Indiana.
1: It, yeah. We're
0: <laughs> it, it's, it's very, proud, very
1: proud of that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, wow, I didn't know I was talking to a fellow Hoosier. Well, that's great. Um, it's too bad it's, it's online or we could do the secret handshake. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, and it's, you have a very interesting position because if I understand it correctly, it's a Catholic endowed chair at a non-Catholic university.
1: That's right, that's right. It's interesting because it um the money for the chair was raised by the Archdiocese of Santa Fe. So the archdiocese didn't give the money directly, but it oversaw the fundraising uh, that provided the endowment for the chair. and um I think before I was hired, there was some you know some argument at the university or some conversation at the university about whether this is an appropriate uh, path for a public university to take to have this sort of an endowment. but it makes sense in New Mexico because New Mexico, obviously, and this is it shows up in my book, but New Mexico is um a very heavily Catholic state. Um, it's, I think about ten percent more Catholic than the rest of the country on average, and has um obviously a very um very Catholic history. And yet there's no Catholic uh, institution of higher education in the entire state. And so the archdiocese, I think, understood this chair as a way to sort of develop a Catholic conversation within higher education in New Mexico in the absence of um, a Catholic institution.
0: Oh well, wow, that, that, that's really interesting. So, do you, do you, how do you feel that um, in that position? Like, I mean, you moved from like Villanova, where hey, can in you Fial- repeat that real quick? Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, you moved from Villanova, Villanova, where yeah. you're in the theology department, and then you move over to this kind of very interesting kind of, I don't know, amphibious position. Um, <laughs> it's, just, it's just kind of, I mean, I, I guess, you, I, how do you feel there?
1: It's, I mean, wonderful, actually. I mean, it's It's. It's kind of, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but, you know, my, my and we'll talk about my book, but my, my book is actually about the role of Cat, the role of the Catholic Church in public education in New Mexico, although <laughs> at, um, at the elementary high school level. So I, the irony of me taking a position like this um, was not lost on me, but um, um, it's really fascinating to be teaching Catholic studies in a public institution. And it's really particularly being in an American studies department rather than a theology department. It completely has transformed the kind of academic conversations that I'm around, um, and has I think forced me to really think about my own scholarship through different kinds of lenses than I was thinking of, about it um, when I was at a Catholic institution. So I, I mean, I had a great experience at Villanova, um, but in terms of yeah, but I being at a public institution really kind of feels like the right fit for me in terms of how I approach my research.
0: Oh, excellent. And it's kind of odd for me because I teach at a public university, a little liberal arts college, um, Mm -hmm. but a public one uh, in in the northwest corner of South Carolina, which is very, very heavily Protestant Christian. Sure. Sure. In many ways, it's and I was teaching a world religions course in this spring, which was very interesting because the vast majority of my students were very religious, Mm -hmm. um, but also very curious Mm -hmm. about other religions. So it was it was fun. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, I love the student body at, at University of New Mexico is wonderful, too. Well oh, good deal.
0: This has kind of moved in into your book. So your book, Religious Lessons, Catholic Sisters and the Captured Schools Crisis in New Mexico. Could you tell us a bit how you ended up writing this book?
1: Sure. Um, so I, was, um, I went to graduate school um, knowing that I was interested in studying um, American Catholic history. I sort of came to that realization as an undergrad. Um, and uh, took a year off between my undergrad and my graduate school and went, uh, worked as a paralegal, actually, um, and was so, so, so also had a sort of prior interest in the law coming into, coming into graduate school. And uh, I took a course when I was in graduate school um, on, with uh, Sarah Berenger-Gordon, who teaches at Penn, but she was visiting at Princeton at the time, um, on religion and constitutional law. And when I was in that course, I happened to read uh, Paul Blanchard's book, American Freedom and Catholic Power, uh, which was written in 1948 and um, was a bestseller. And in that book, it, the book is a sort of broad critique of the Catholic Church's sort of role in sort of the social political realms of the United States in the 1940s. Um, but in that book, he makes mention of the dispute that was happening in New Mexico as he was writing the book um, about these sisters who were teaching in public schools. And he's obviously very critical of it in that book, but it piqued my interest um, because it was a situation that I had never heard about before. (laughs) Um, And it, you know, I had an interest in Catholic sisters. Um, I knew that the 1940s when, you know, in the sort of historiography of women religious, the 1940s is usually characterized as a deeply conservative period uh, in the history of women religious. It, it sort of lies in between the 1917 code of canon law that put a lot of restrictions on what they could do and before um, the sort of reforms of the Second Vatican Council. And so, I it it got me interested, you know, asking, okay, well, you know, what's going on here with these sisters who are teaching and working in this very public capacity in the United States. Um and so and I had, I had spent a little time in New Mexico and and I knew enough about New Mexico. I didn't know a lot about it at the time, but I knew enough about New Mexico to know that the culture here, cultures here are quite different than in other parts of the United States and to know and to suspect that the educational history in this region must have been different than the rest of the United States. And so um, so I came down to New Mexico just on a sort of initial exploratory trip looking for source material and went to the law library um, up in Santa Fe at the courthouse and found this incredible trial transcript that was, I don't know, something like 1,800 pages long. and it had just, it had the voices of all of these women religious who had taught in these schools. Um, And this is, again, this is a period where, you know, women religious weren't commenting on their work in public very often. And it had all of their voices sort of talking about, you know, how they approached education, how they imagined themselves in between the church and the state. And, um, you know, as a sort of budding historian, this was just, an incredible document. And when I found that document, it sort of sealed the deal for me and made me realize that this is what I wanted to write my dissertation about. And then of course, um, the dissertation eventually became the book.
0: Well, excellent. Well, and that's, I mean, this is one thing I, am always telling my students when they have to write a history paper is if you can find good primary sources, your paper writes itself. Yes. So, and I love, um, <laughs> I'm looking right, forward yeah. to that that chapter, especially where you're focusing on on the the uh, what the sisters are actually saying, is just so fascinating. Oh,
1: thank so, you. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah.
0: So your book, um, if we if we look at the introduction, you're focusing on what's called either the Dixon's case or I'm sorry, the Dixon case or the Zeller's case. Could you tell us in a nutshell what that uh, yes. case was? Sure. Yeah.
1: So um, so the formal name of the case is Zeller's v Huff. Um. And it was known popularly both in New Mexico and across the United States as the Dixon case because the case started in a little community um, in northern New Mexico called Dixon. Uh, the case started in 1948, and it was a lawsuit that was filed here in New Mexico. Um, and the lawsuit, um, it, it, it involved something like 235 defendants. It was a huge, huge suit. And the suit, um, the suit called out these defendants for being complicit in um, a basically public parochial educational system in New Mexico. Um, And in particular, the suit involved 131 Catholic sisters who were teaching in public schools here in the state, um, teaching in, I think, 26 different communities all across the state, mainly in the northern part of the state. Um, And the, and the, um, the suit accused them of, of breaching uh, the separation of church and state of violating both the state and federal constitutions by um, obviously uh, providing uh, children or, um, or presenting children with religious influences in the, in these classrooms that were publicly funded. So they were, they were part of the public school system, but run in many ways as at least in part as Catholic classrooms uh, by these sisters. Um, the lawsuit again started, it started, um, in a little community called Dixon, uh, the New Mexico, um, Northern New Mexico and these communities in particular in the middle of the 20th century were very, very, very Catholic communities. Uh, this little community of Dixon though was a little bit different. Uh, it was about half Catholic and half Protestant, uh, because Protestant missionaries had, um, set up shop in Dixon in the late 19th century and, um, and sort of transformed the religious demographic of that community. And in Dixon, um, in most communities in New Mexico, um, the very, very Catholic communities, uh, the majority of residents were very happy with this arrangement, uh, Catholic sisters in in their schools, in their public schools. But in Dixon, as you can imagine, um, there was a significant significant group of Protestant parents who were very angry uh, that their children uh, were being taught by Catholic nuns. And uh, so they filed the lawsuit and what becomes when and the lawsuit starts here at the local level, but it gets picked up by these national advocacy groups. Uh, In the late 1940s, in particular, a group called Protestants and Other Americans United for Separation of Church and State, P-O-A-U was the acronym. It's a really unwieldy name. Um, And they still exist, of course. Now they're Americans United for Separation of Church and State. But they sort of um, they sort of get wind of the Zeller's lawsuit or the Dixon case, and they make it their sort of cause celeb in the first years after they are founded. Um, And use it as part of a national publicity campaign uh, to draw American attention to this problem of what they call captive schools, uh, which uh, are ostensibly public schools that have been um, captured to use P.O.A. POAU's language by the Catholic church um, in the bodies really of, of women religious who, who, who are sent in as public teachers to teach in these schools uh, during this period. And this was, um, New Mexico and the Dixon case is, is the most um, well-known of of these, quote-unquote, captive school cases that emerge uh, during the 1940s. Um, there, It would have, in, in, in 1948, people all over the United States heard about the Dixon case. POAU had a lot of influence, um, and they were able to really promote it. Um, but it wasn't the only one of these lawsuits. There were by my estimation, about 2,000 sisters all across the United States teaching in public schools um, from places like Kentucky and North Dakota and Ohio, really just all over the United States, particularly in the Midwest, actually. Um, And this new group, POAU, which, again, is a a legal advocacy group, right, promoting the separation of church and state, made it their mission to litigate or to assist in the litigation of these uh, quote-unquote captive schools uh, wherever they could find them uh, during this period, so it becomes a sort of national, uh, a sort of national phenomenon. And, it, and it's interesting because legal scholars, legal historians, um, tend to overlook these captive school lawsuits, these captive school cases, because um, the issue of captive schools, the issue of sisters teaching in public schools, um, never reached, uh, never reached the federal courts. I never reached the Supreme Court. And when legal historians talk about the middle of the 20th century and they talk about the First Amendment and First Amendment jurisprudence, they tend to talk about these major Supreme Court cases of the mid-20th century, in particular the Everson case and the McCollum case, because rightly so, these Supreme Court cases transformed First Amendment jurisprudence uh, during this time period. What's interesting, though, and so, so legal scholars don't really care about captive school cases because they, re- they remained at the state court level, at the level of state courts. Um, but I'm not a legal, well, I, I, I do legal history, but I really think of myself as a cultural historian. And from the perspective of a cultural historian, these captive school cases, these cases involving sisters in public classrooms, are incredibly interesting and incredibly important because even if they didn't shift constitutional discourse, they were, on a popular level, the way in which hundreds of thousands of Americans um, thought about, the the, the sort of medium through which hundreds of thousands of Americans thought about the First Amendment, thought about what, say, separation of church and state was or was not in the middle of the 20th century. So from the perspective of a cultural historian, these cases loom much larger (laughs) than um, from the perspective of somebody who is only interested in, um, in constitutional jurisprudence during this period.
0: Oh, excellent! So then, um, that's a, you did a wonderful job of summarizing your your introduction. <laughs> uh, so moving on then to, to the first chapter, educating the vernacular. Could you tell us a little bit yeah. about the the Catholics that live in New Mexico and the relationship between these Catholics and the Catholic Church as an institution?
1: Sure. Yeah. So um, New Mexico has and an, uh, New Mexico has um a a long complicated history with catholicism um obviously catholicism came to new mexico in the primarily in the the 17th century uh when franciscan uh, mission spanish franciscan missionaries came up uh north from into the sort of northern uh perimeter of new spain and brought catholicism with them and um by the And and I'm not going to go into the whole history here, but by the 19th century, so New Mexico becomes a territory of the United States with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. And when New Mexico becomes a uh, territory of the United States, um, the way in which Catholicism is um, sort of the sort of Catholic institutional structure of New Mexico changes. So what happens is you have a Hispanic Catholic population living here, um, and you have a governing, a church governing structure that shifts so that it becomes part of the um, U.S. Catholic Church. Um, the, once it becomes part of the United States, um, the Vatican sends a new bishop. It becomes, its, uh, Santa Fe becomes a new diocese, but formerly uh, New Mexico had been part of the Diocese of Durango in Mexico. Um, and uh, it becomes its own diocese, the diocese and then later Archdiocese of Santa Fe, And uh, the Vatican sends a new bishop, uh, Archbishop LeMay, and he sort of makes it his mission to um, sort of, how can I say this, to civilize, right, the Hispanic population to correct what he sees as errors in their Catholic practice. And uh, so what you have through the 19th century is you have um, an institutional church that is uh, predominantly um, Anglo. Um, predominantly made up of uh, clergy from Europe and uh, eastern parts of the United States and a Hispanic population who is very Catholic, but who um, for whom uh, Catholicism means something quite different uh, than uh, the members of the institutional church that have been sort of imported. And so there's this kind of friction. Between uh, between sort of Hispanic Catholicism, popular Catholicism, lay Catholicism in the 19th century and the institutional Catholicism of the diocese and archdiocese of Santa Fe. Um, does that answer your question? Or It's a, the start of an answer.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, no, that, that answers it, it really well, that there's um, that there is that kind of there. there this isn't a. Unified Church, in a sense.
1: No, no, it's not, and and yeah, that's right, that's right. I mean, the best example of that, and the example that that folks tend to talk about, um, is the 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 Penitente Brotherhood, which in New Mexican Catholicism is kind of known for. The Penitentes, and of course, the Penitentes were a lay brotherhood that had a lot of power and influence in northern New Mexico in the ter, when when the territorial period begins and. Uh, LeMay, I mean, one of the first things that he does is, is issue a bunch of rules to try to restrict the power of that brotherhood, right? And eventually that brotherhood is um, is censored by the Catholic Church um, and not, reinst- not reinstated until the late 1940s. And so that really is kind of, that conflict kind of embodies the sort of larger conflict between um, Hispanic lay Catholicism and the sort of Anglo clerical Catholicism of the 19th and into the early 20th centuries.
0: And one thing that uh, I find so fascinating about your book is that even though you had these conflicts between these two very different kinds of Catholics, they all agreed that having sister taught public schools was really a good idea.
1: Yeah, so how, yeah. So what happens then is that in the late 19th century, um, Protestant missionaries show up, mainly Presbyterians, but other denominations as well, and they have a lot of influence. Um, New Mexico's public education system takes form pretty late in the game. It doesn't really New Mexico doesn't really get Um, establish a coherent public education system until around the turn of the 20th century. And um, when that sort of coherent educational system is established, Protestant missionaries, um, by that point, Protestant missionaries are having a lot of influence over what it looks like. And um, they're really invested in having a new public education system that A, Americanizes the population um, and B, um, Christianizes, quote unquote, the population in a particular in in the same way that public schools were meant to Christianize students in a non-sectarian Protestant fashion. uh, Other places in the United States in the late 19th century. And so by the time this new public education system is set up in the early 20th century in New Mexico, um, both the institutional Catholic Church and Hispanic Catholics, particularly living in rural communities in the north for different reasons, are deeply ambivalent about this new public education system. Um, Rural Hispanic Catholics are ambivalent about it because um, it's requiring their students to um, go to school in English. Um, It has a pretty coercively Americanizing curriculum uh, that's being being emphasized. And also the new funding structures for this public educational system are um, very, um, put rural Hispanic communities um, at a very dramatic disadvantage in terms of how much money they get um how long their how long their school years are funded for all sorts of different things. And so what happens by the early 20th century is um these predominantly almost entirely hispanic com- communities in rural northern new mexico and the institutional catholic church are sort of looking at each other finding the, finding that they are both at the margins of this new public education system and realizing that um you know Hiring on a local level, on a local level where 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 communities still have discretion about who what kinds of teachers get hired, they they come to the conclusion that putting sisters in these classrooms, um, makes sense for a lot in a lot of ways. Um, it, it makes sense because you know even you know they're Catholic and and despite their ambivalences, Hispanic Catholic communities respect these sisters. It makes sense because these sisters will work for um, little or no salaries as opposed to lay teachers and. Um, that's important because these communities are not getting funded for their public schools. Uh, So it makes sense on a lot of levels uh, for both the institutional church and for Hispanic Catholic communities by the 1920s,
0: 30s, and 40s. So this is something that both locals and the institutional church supported a lot.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and it was very much a collaborative effort between uh, local clergy, between the archbishop, and between uh, predominantly Hispanic uh, local school boards.
0: And just so we're and just to clarify, too, because I, I love the images you include here and especially the descriptions of the habits. So you're having these mm-hmm. Catholic school sisters teaching in a public school wearing religious habits.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. So they would have been depending on depending on the community uh, in New Mexico. Um, we had a lot of Franciscan sisters. We also had especially a lot of Dominican sisters uh, and the Dominican sisters would have been wearing white habits. Um, but they would have been, I mean, this is before the Second Vatican Council and the decree on the adaptation and renewal of religious life. So, sisters were in, with, with rare, rare exceptions, sisters were required to wear the full habit, uh, when they were doing this kind of work. And, uh, in fact, the question or the, 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 the fact of their habit becomes a very sort of live point of debate in this kind of litigation that arises from, from these schools. So, in New Mexico, In fact, uh, when the Zeller's case reaches the state Supreme Court, uh, the state Supreme Court decides that um, not only uh, are the sisters involved in the lawsuit uh, violating the law because of the certain things that they were doing in their classrooms, but it goes a step further and says, in fact, any sister that were to teach in New Mexico's public schools in the future, no matter how she ran her classroom, would be in violation of the law because of the clothing that she wore, uh, and so the state supreme court says that sisters, by the nature of the costumes that they wear, are in fact embodying a violation of church-state separation. Right, that their very appearance uh, is a religious influence uh, that is in violation of the law, um, and other, you know, and this this becomes an issue: the that, that the question of sisters' habits. Um, is a question that state courts all around the country are, are looking at and thinking about, um, and legislatures all around the country are looking at and thinking about in the first half of the 20th century. And there's never, state courts never reach a consensus on the issue. Um, there are some states that decide that, um, that a sister's costume is her own sort of, uh, personal religious choice. It's, it's a matter of free exercise. Um, there are, states who decide uh, in the same way that New Mexico does, that, that sisters, uh, when they wear habits, are forbidden from public, uh, prohibited from public classrooms uh, because their habits are a violation of the Establishment Clause, right? And, and again, because these captive school cases never reach a federal court or never reach the Supreme Court, um, that sort of remains a kind of unsolved or a sort of live issue uh, in uh, church-state uh, jurisprudence. It's never really resolved.
0: So and you, you do a great job in this book, getting local voices and showing how these these habit wearing sisters are really really well respected. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a win win situation for the institutional Catholic Church and local Catholics. Mm-hmm. So how does this even become a lawsuit? Why? Who has a problem with
1: yeah, it? Yeah. So 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 this is where you know Dixon. So Dixon is this little community um, and and and. and if if, if anybody who is listening to this knows New Mexico, it's, it's a little community about halfway between Santa Fe and Taos, right off of the Rio Grande River, or the Rio Grande. Um, and again, Dixon, it's a small community. I think in, in the 1940s, it had about 1,200 people living there. Um, and it traditionally, it's, 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 it's a traditionally, um, Hispanic, uh, community, but, um, in the 1880s and 1890s, Presbyterian missionaries um, again sort of set up shop in Dixon. They opened they opened a mission school there, a Presbyterian school there. They opened a little hospital there. Um, and by the 1940s, you have um, you have some of these aging missionaries who are still there and have a lot of influence in the community. Presbyterians, and you also have a small but influential group of Hispanic Presbyterians uh, and other Hispanic Protestants living in the community. Um, and what happens is there's, there's, there's a particular priest, and I talk about him a lot in my book, a guy named, uh, a guy named Father Coopers. Um, and he has, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a priest who has a ton of local influence, just a ton of local influence. And, and his, he kind of makes it his job. And he goes, he's, he's in a few different parishes across northern New Mexico in the early 20th century, but he kind of makes it his job to sort of set up Catholic, Catholic institutions in the rural north. And he, um, he's pretty savvy or, opportunistic, depending on your take. Um, and he has he has no problem uh, with making deals, making deals with local politicians to get these schools open. <laughs> and um, when he shows up in Dixon, he makes it his job to open a Catholic school there. Um, and he uh, he does the same thing up the mountain in Pinyasco. It was a sort of it was a joint parish at the time. And uh, he has no problem again, he has no problem sort of cutting a deal with this is Rio Arriba county, and he has no problem cutting a deal with the Rio Arriba county School Board um to say, okay, you know i'll I'll build these schools, I'll find teachers to teach and I'll find sisters to teach in these schools, um but the county needs to to pay these teachers salaries um and this, of course, um, when he does this, he does this in Dixon, and then as soon as he manages to get public funds for the school in Dixon, um the county closes the uh, pre-existing public school there, which was run by lay people, right? And this just makes the Protestants who live in Dixon so, so angry, as you can imagine, because suddenly um, it's a rural place, they don't have a lot of educational options, and suddenly here are these Presbyterian children who are being sent to the nuns for education. Um, and there is, uh, one woman in particular, a woman named Lydia Zellers, who is the daughter of a Presbyterian minister, uh, Lydia Cordova Zellers. She's a Hispanic, although married to an Anglo, um, and she's the daughter of a Presbyterian minister and she, um, has two kids and, uh, is just really, really angry about this situation. And so she and, uh, other Protestants from, uh, Dixon and the surrounding communities, uh, Develop, get together, and they found an organization that they call the Dixon Free Schools, uh, Free Schools Committee. And, uh, make it their mission to, uh, get the sisters out of their public, local public education system. And again, they, um, eventually, uh, are able to attract the attention of this national advocacy group, POAU, and that's when the case, uh, that's when the case sort of snowballs, right? So it starts as this little tiny local, although people are very impassioned by it, um, this little tiny local dispute and turns into something much, much larger, taking on uh, the New Mexican uh, educational system on a statewide level.
0: Well, and this plays into a major tension that you then explore in Chapter 3. Mm-hmm. Um, that these sisters do face, I mean, this is a, a kind of ambiguous situation because they're professed religious who are supposed to be obedient to their superiors. Yeah and they understand themselves to have a, a religious vocation to teach but they're teaching in public school yeah. so what kind of tensions and contradictions do they face
1: it's i mean they're in a really difficult situation you know and 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 they are really oftentimes ingenious <laughs> in the ways that they handle the situation that they're in so again this is um you know this era the 1930s and 1940s this is the sort of era right the era immediately following the 1917 code of canon law, the 1917 code of canon law puts a ton of restrictions on Catholic sisters in terms of, in terms of um, what they can do and how they can do it. And and the sort of understanding is that, and I sort of in in this chapter, I set it up, I set up this in my mind, it makes sense to sort of think about these sisters as teaching sort of in between two different walls that are both intended to sort of separate the church from the world. (laughs) Or the I'm sorry, the church from the state. Right. So on the Catholic side, you have um, these restrictions uh, that are being placed on sisters, all with the intention of keeping them separated p- from the public sphere. Right. I mean, we're talking about cloister. Um, and because of those restrictions. Right. There are they understand that um, there are they're not supposed to um, be interacting in the public sphere. They're not supposed to be um Providing a secular education, they're not supposed to be secularly educated themselves. Um, and but then on the other side, when they are hired on as public school teachers, um, they also understand that they're submitting to the expectations of the state, and the expectations of the state, uh, you know, stipulate that um, that edu- public education should be non-sectarian, that Catholic influence uh, should not be present <laughs> in public education. And so these sisters really find themselves in a sort of in a very difficult in-between space. <laughs> and, um, you know, but they but but they're in this space and and they they make the best of their situations uh, and and they make the best. And then they have they have very good intentions, I think, for the most part and, and, and serving their students to the best of their ability. And so in these public classrooms. So one of the things that I did um, in the book is is is. I mean, one of the amazing resources that I found when I was when I was looking at the trial transcript from this case is um, the Zellers, the Dixon Free Schools Committee. One of the things that the schools committee did in, in, in filing this lawsuit is it went around Lydia Zellers and her friends drove around New Mexico and they 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 got access to all of these schools and they went inside these schools and they took photographs <laughs> Um, and they took photographs of what they saw in the classrooms. They took photographs of how the classrooms were arranged. They took photographs of the kinds of textbooks and comic books that were on students' desks. They took photographs of the sorts of pictures, the sorts of images that were hanging on the walls of these classrooms. And so one of the things that I do in this chapter is I sort of, I, I look at these photographs and, and I, I, I try to sort of think critically about these photographs as a sort of way to begin to think about how sisters arranged their classrooms, um, how sisters tried to take account both of the expectations of their church and their superiors, but also the expectations of the state and the state's um, educational curriculum when they uh, arranged their classrooms and uh, made decisions about um, how they were going to teach their students on a sort of day-to-day basis.
0: And and could you tell us a little bit more than a, because these photographs are a fascinating part of your research Mm -hmm. and your explanations of them. Could you tell us uh, um, the kind of creative ways the sisters tried to deal with this tension?
1: (laughs) Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, they they looked for, you know, a lot of they had their most success. um, They had their best success when they were able to find sort of areas of overlap between Catholic educational approaches and the educational approaches that were favored by the state. And so, um, for example, and and this is in in the 1930s and 1940s, uh, within among Catholic educators, there are sort of competing visions of like what Catholic education is supposed to look like. And um, there are some Catholic educators, some prominent Catholic educators in the United States by the 1930s and 1940s that are really advocating for this idea that Catholic education needs to sort of um, be in conversation with um, sort of education or pedagogies that are sort of being developed within American public, uh, within American public educational discourse, Right. right. And so um, there are, for example, um, the Catholic uh, Catholic educators in the 1940s are publishing um, sort of curric- curriculum that new, that suddenly are replicating in a lot of ways pretty closely public education curriculum. Uh, they're publishing new uh, textbook series that are emphasizing um, sort of uh, ideas about patriotism and sort of um, civic uh, sort of civic development of children and things like that. And so the sisters use these use this kind of new conversation within Catholic educational sister uh, educational circles as a resource and um, build as much as possible. Build their classrooms um, in ways that um, in ways that sort of draw on that, but then are also to co- are also able to correspond to the sort of New Mexico's public education, uh, public educational uh, curricula.
0: Excellent. So, the the problem they face, right, is that even though they they try and deal with this, these tensions, as your photographs show, they're not going to deal with them in a way that makes um, Lydia Zeller's happy no. or um, the um, POAU happy. So, I wonder if you could tell us how does how does Zellers and the POAU get connected, and what's this whole captivity narrative that they they utilize?
1: Yeah. So, so one, so the Dixon case is interesting in that it happens at at a moment where protestant americans protestant american intellectuals in particular um are thinking um how can i say this are are they're deeply suspicious of the catholic church at this particular moment for a particular set of reasons um this is an era and john mcgreevy has written about this um in his book catholicism and american freedom uh and and others have as well but this is an America. this is an era where um where sort of liberal Protestant intellectuals are really, really concerned about this thing that they're calling Catholic power. Um, they're really concerned about the Catholic Church in as far as it looks authoritarian. They're really look concerned about the Catholic Church in, ter- in as far as its institutional structure looks, um, looks uh, undemocratic. And they're concerned about it for a couple of different reasons. They're concerned about it because this is, I mean, this is the 1940s, and they're concerned about it in the context of what's going on in Europe. In the 1940s, they're looking at fascism and to a lesser extent, communism, and they're seeing structural similarities between um, the sort of top down authoritarian structure of fascist governments and the sort of top down governing structure of the Catholic Church. They're also worried about uh, they're also worried about um, the sort of the seeming sympathy that the Catholic Church in Europe has for, for example, Franco uh, and some of the fascists. Uh, fascist initiatives in Europe in the uh, 1940s. So they're worried about, they're worried about these structural similarities and this idea that the Catholic church would, in their minds, in their minds, and we're talking about people like John Dewey. uh, We're talking about people like Paul Blanchard who wrote American freedom and Catholic power. um, And we're talking about the Niebuhr brothers Uh, in their minds. uh, The Catholic church is, predisposed to be sympathetic to something like fascism because of these structural similarities that they see in how in how these institutions work. So that's one half of what's going on. The other half of what's going on is domestic, is, is happening at home. So in the context of this concern about what's happening abroad, they see on the domestic front within the United States, they see the Catholic Church um, gaining political power gaining social influence. I mean, this is an era where, um, you know, the Catholic population is, is, is increasing dramatically in the context of the baby boom. This is an era where Catholics on the local level are sort of climbing the socioeconomic lo- uh, ladder, um, gaining political influence in, in, in local communities. Um, and they noticed that in the 1940s, the Catholic Church, particularly in the sphere of education, is is in a new, is, 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 there's there's a new initiative within the Catholic Church in the educational sphere to go after um, state and federal tax dollars for its schools. And it makes sense, again, if you think about it, I, I, I keep placing it in the context of the baby boom, um, but the Catholic Church is um, really pressed to be educating a lot of little Catholic kids in the 1940s and 50s, and it's trying to figure out how it can do this economically. And um, it's realizing, and, and this is an era where um, increasingly there are, there. Are, are both state and federal tax dollars being poured into public educational systems? And the Catholic, the Catholic church in the United States is saying, well, you know, don't we deserve some of that money? Don't we deserve some of that money uh, for our schools? Isn't this, can't we sort of, can't we frame this as not being about giving money to a religious institution? Can't we frame it? uh, They, 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 they propose something called the child benefit theory of education, right? Can't we rather frame this as, um, state and federal tax dollars going to individual kids rather than a religious institution. And therefore, isn't it OK uh, if we um, claim some of this money for our educational initiatives? So people like John Dewey and Paul Blanchard and and, and the Niebuhr brothers and um, these liberal Protestant intellectuals look at this and say, this is an authoritarian, undemocratic institution that is trying to um, exert influence over our democratic cultural institutions that are so important, right? So public schools, particularly in the 1940s, someone like John Dewey looks at public schools and says, you know, American democracy is, is, is vulnerable. American democracy is vulnerable, and the only way that it can persevere is if kids are instilled with good democratic values. Uh, and how are they going to be instilled with good democratic values? That has, we have to work on that. That has to happen. Uh, within the way that public education is structured. And it looks at the Catholic Church and what the Catholic Church is trying to do in the 1940s. Um, and they're deeply concerned that this is, uh, that this is a threat to democracy. So, yeah, so the captive, so the captive school thing then, right, is their way of sort of explaining <laughs> um this what the Catholic Church is trying to do when it comes to public education in the 40s in the context of this concern about Catholic power. And they use this language of captivity, right? That the Catholic Church is trying to capture American public education. And that language, and this this is probably familiar to, to folks, but that language has a long history. The language of Catholic captivity has a long history. It has a long history in the United States. Um, and Protestants, this goes all the way back to the early 19th century. Protestants um, in the United States um, have, for a long, for generations, sort of described or or, or or sort of articulated their concerns about Catholicism and their fears about Catholicism by using language of uh, capture, by using language of captivity. I mean, this goes all the way back to, to um, Maria Monk in the 1830s, uh, and this idea that um, this idea that the Catholic Church uh, exerts power over people by brainwashing them. By imprisoning them, um, by holding them against their will, right? Uh, and the same kind of rhetoric um, is sort of updated and reapplied in the 1940s when POAU not only litigates these cases, but um, but brings these cases into the public spotlight. So when POAU, which is again a, an advocacy, advocacy and, and and an advocacy group based in Washington D.C. Um, when they publicize the Dixon case, for example, they talk about, um, you know, they talk about uh, it, it using this language of captivity. Um, there's uh, Frank Mead, who is one of their members, writes a, uh, writes a, a, an article about the Dixon case that is printed, reprinted everywhere. And the title of the article is is shadows over our schools. And he sort of describes what's happening in New Mexico as being the sort of as, as, in, a, in very foreboding language um, of the Catholic Church sort of descending on these schools and taking them captive and holding Protestant students against their will and um, doing its work uh, through the medium of these brainwashed nuns. I mean, this is the kind of language that POAU is using to, to sort of draw attention and alarm um, around, around the cause of, of these public parochial schools. So, um so yeah so this this captivity language then is 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 a language that that Protestants in the in the 1940s would have already been familiar with it has a it has a long and 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 very um potent history in the United States but it's updated and 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 used in a particular way in the 1940s as a means of drawing attention to this to this first amendment to this to this issue that's very much an issue of constitutional law
0: right. and, and a big focus of this it comes down to the sisters wearing these habits. Mm-hmm. So, why is that such an issue, and why is it so difficult for Catholic legal, legal specialists to defend <laughs> the word habit?
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's a Catholic. It, it, it's such an issue because I mean, it gets to in inter- I mean, to go back to POAU and what they're concerned about in the 1940s. For them, I mean, I'm thinking about how Paul Blanchard just talks about nuns, right? For them, um, the habit is in and of itself an undemocratic costume, right? It is in and of itself. It's the, um, it's the physical or the sort of outward manifestation of an authoritarian impulse that they see at work within the Catholic church. Right. So, I mean, I, I liken it. I, I, I wrote another, I wrote an article for the journal of church and state several years ago that, that, that put the conversations about the mid century conversations about Catholic habits into the sort of, into a sort of comparative context with uh, contemporary concerns, Uh, around uh around the islamic veil right Uh, because the language that that was used in the early 20th mid-20th century is so similar to some of the language in france and other places that you see um leveled uh when when you hear criticisms about the islamic veil right that it um that it subjugates women right that um it's inherently anti-democratic right that um that women that, that that women who wear these costumes they're you know, there's no way that they can be thinking for themselves, that somehow the costume is a sort of is a sort of outward, uh, a sort of outward testament to the fact that they're unable to think for themselves. Right. I mean, this is the kind of language that 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 liberal Protestants in the 1940s and 50s were using to describe the habit and what the habit did. And so the understanding is that. Right. Um, little kids in public classrooms um, who, you know, day in and day out, um, view or or gaze upon a teacher who wears a habit that there's no way that those kids are going to be getting a good democratic in, uh, education right that there's no way that those kids are going to be instilled with democratic values because um because they are um becoming sort of they're becoming accustomed to this inherently authoritarian this inherently anti-democratic sort of sight at the front of their classroom when they see their teacher right so, um, so that's where the concern, uh, that's sort of how the concern of, about the habit fits into the conversation about Catholic power, um, and those conversations about captivity. Um, when it comes to the way in which, um, the Catholic Church tried to defend these situations, um, responsibility for defending these situations, uh, fell to, uh, the National Catholic Welfare Conference. So if POAU was the sort of, Advocacy group assisting in litigating cases like these. Um, The National Catholic Welfare Conference was the sort of organization, right? And it was a sort of uh, under the auspices of the U.S. Council or the U.S. Bishops at the time. Um, But it's the organization charged with defending sisters in cases like these in New Mexico and also and also across the country. Um, And they have a really really hard time articulating a coherent defense of sisters teaching publicly um, and they have a really hard time for a couple of different reasons um, you know it's, it's interesting because from our perspective in the 21st century we might look at these sisters and we might say well you know couldn't you couldn't you articulate a defense around the idea of religious freedom because in fact and this is what some of the courts ended up saying in fact you know don't sisters have don't doesn't any teacher have a right to wear, what she or he wants to wear when she teaches. And if she or he wants to wear clothing that's an expression of his or her religious commitment, don't they have the freedom to do that? Isn't that freedom of expression? I mean, that seems like from the 21st century vantage point, that seems like a pretty compelling uh, legal argument in defense of what these sisters were doing, at least what they were wearing in their classrooms. The problem, though, for the National Catholic Welfare Conference in the 1940s, when it's charged with defending all of these women, the problem, or one of the problems, is that in the nineteen forties, the Catholic Church in the United States and the Catholic Church broadly speaking doesn't really understand how to own religious freedom as a sort of Catholic concept <laughs> and as a sort of Catholic strategy, as a sort of Catholic rhetoric. Um, this is and now John Courtney Murray is is active during the 1940s. John Courtney Murray is 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 committed to sort of um, demonstrating how religious freedom is, in fact, um, a Catholic value, but he's um, but his his articulations of religious freedom as a Catholic value don't gain currency really until the Second Vatican Council and the Second Vatican Council's declaration on religious freedom, which of course happens in the 1960s, in the early 1960s. Um, and so, in the 1940s, the National Catholic Welfare Conference is is still kind of stuck it still doesn't really understand, um, you know, how it can make a legal argument around religious freedom that is both legally persuasive and also compellingly Catholic or, or consistently Catholic. And so it's sort, of, it's sort of in a bind in the 1940s when it comes to defending cases like, like the Zeller's case.
0: So um, the case goes to trial. hmm Eventually. Uh and all these sisters get called you know, up to you know, that's why you have the eighteen hundred pages yeah, of yeah. transcripts because all these sisters get called up. Um, what was the trial like for them?
1: It was just traumatic. I mean, really, really traumatic. One of the things I, I was fortunate so so I had you know, I had um I had the transcripts, right? And that was, that was a, a really a, a primary source for me when I was sort of trying to, to sort of recreate their experiences, um, taking the witness stand. Um, but I was also fortunate to be able to interview, um, several sisters, sisters who at the time were, were still living about their experience of the Zeller's trial. And again, this, you know, this is in the 19, 19- you know the trial happened in 1948, 1949, um, and I interviewed these sisters. I guess it would have been I don't know 2006 or so, and so we're talking. You know, these are women who are remembering an experience that had happened. You know, 50 or 60 years earlier. These are women in their 80s uh, and even 90s remembering experience an experience that had happened 50 or 60 years earlier. But their memories, at least the women I talked, I spoke with, um, their memories were so vivid uh, because. The trial had been, again, so traumatic. I mean, again, these are women who, in as far as they have entered the religious life, are they're not even allowed to own cameras. And yet their photograph is being taken and published and, and, and disseminated. Right. Um, they're living in communities that were um, in which there are tight restrictions on their ability to or their tight restrictions on how and when they can communicate with non-Catholic adults. And here they are taking the being subpoenaed and taking the witness stand in front of a large audience made up of Catholics and non-Catholics. And um, their words are being reprinted in newspapers. And it's, it's just it's an intensely public experience. It's an intensely public experience that they didn't ask for. And um, and yeah, so it's traumatic. And it's also, um, you know, they're also they just don't know what to do because they they have no you know, separation of church and state, it's a legal concept, obviously, um, but it's not a concept that these sisters own, right? It's not a concept that these sisters, it's not part of their sort of their vernacular, their way of sort of talking about the world, their way of making sense of the world. And so, you know, but the expectation in the courtroom is that, you know, they need to somehow defend their practices. They need to somehow defend their classroom arrangements in a way that um in a way that answers to these legal standards, in a way that answers to this um this legal concept of separation of church and state. And they have no idea how to do that. They have no idea how to do that. And so so much of what you see when you look back at that at that trial transcript, so much of what you see is their failing, their failure, right? I mean their their efforts to I mean they're evasive and they try to, you know, they, they they try to they try to do get by as best as they can and some are some are more successful than others. But but ultimately, it's 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 a situation that is setting that is setting them up for failure in that regard.
0: Right. So they um right there their the trial uh, finds against them. Mm-hmm. Right. Could you tell us a little bit more about the findings of that trial and what impact they had?
1: Yeah. So um so the trial court the district so the trial happened at the, the level of the district court and uh, the district court judge found um almost exclusively against the sisters. And, but he, he sort of, the district court judge sort of looked at it in a case-by-case basis because, in fact, there was a huge range within, I mean, so we're talking about 131 different sisters in 26 different communities. Some of these communities, in some of these communities, um, sisters were pretty, um, pretty, oh, what's the word? They weren't particularly careful in sort of keeping religious stuff out of their classrooms. And some of these schools were run pretty much like Catholic schools. In other communities, sisters made much more of an effort. In other communities, you know, they were very careful to only teach religion before eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, They were very careful to, you know, um, not have Catholic um, comic books in their library. Right. Um, And so the the district court judge really did look at the, the violent or the district court judge really did sort of look at these schools on a sort of case by case basis. And he said, yeah, most of these schools um are violating the law, but there's a couple that actually aren't. I mean, there's a couple where the sisters have actually been really, really careful. Um, the Dixon Free Schools Committee was not happy with that decision, even though that decision effectively effectively meant that most of the sisters had to leave the public classrooms, 90, 95 percent of them. Um, the Dixon Free Schools Committee was not um satisfied uh, with the district court's decision because, and, and understandably so, It expected that, okay, you know, the court is telling, you know, all these sisters that they have to leave their classrooms. Well, what's going to prevent these religious communities from just sending new sisters to replace them, right? What's going to prevent these local school boards from just hiring a new set of sisters to replace the older sisters? And so they appealed the case to the state Supreme Court. And the state Supreme Court, uh, as I mentioned earlier, took the district court's decision and, and went a step further. And said that, in fact, right, there's a more um, there's a more sort of systematic issue here. And that issue is, is the issue of, of, of religious clothing. Right. That um, no matter what sisters are doing in their classrooms, no matter how um, no matter how careful they're being about uh, keeping religion out of the public classroom um, because of the clothing that they wear, they uh, cannot be teaching in those classrooms uh, in, a, in, in as long as they're still wearing those religious habits. Um, and of course, again, this is before Vatican II, and so at least in New Mexico, um, m- sisters were not in a position to 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 take to remove their habits and put on ordinary clothes. There was a case in North Dakota, actually, where where the bishop gave sisters uh, uh, permission to to take their habits off and put on ordinary clothes, which was really remarkable for the late 1940s for a bishop to say that. Um, but usually, that you know, for for a, a court to sit, come out and say, okay, well, sisters and habits can't teach in public schools, that basically would mean that sisters themselves would no longer be teaching in public schools. And so sisters and, but but by the time that the the state Supreme court came out with its decision uh, in New Mexico, which was, I guess, 1951 uh, by that time, most of the religious communities had actually pulled their sisters out of the schools anyway. Um, just because, I mean, this is a time where there's a, there's a huge demand for sisters as teachers in Catholic schools. And most of these communities kind of came to the conclusion, you know what, like this, having our sisters go through this trial was like super traumatic. Like we'd rather they be teaching in Catholic schools anyway, where they don't have to deal with this stuff. So we're just going to relocate them. So by the time the Supreme court is state Supreme court issued its decision, it was sort of a moot point. um, But it certainly prevented sisters from returning to
0: public schools in the future. So um, in many ways, this story you tell is is a very sad story. It's a story of division where these, um, these poor nuns, they're divided, in a sense, by the fact that they have to make the, uh, the church happy and the state happy. Yeah. Um, this community is divided, right? The, uh, it was already divided before the trial, but the divisions get even stronger after. Yeah. But your epilogue ends on a hopeful note, on, on this note of reconciliation. So mm-hmm. I, I, could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So um, so the Dixon. In case and and again, we're talking primarily about this this little community in northern New Mexico. Um, it deeply, deeply divided the community. I mean, so much. You know, I, I interviewed a lot of um, a lot of residents of Dixon, um, and you know, so much that 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 these groups—Protestants and Catholics—you know—they uh, would they didn't talk to one another. You know, Catholic parents wouldn't let their kids play with Protestant kids. Right? I mean, there were just um, there were divisions before the case, but. Um, But the case really um, um, exacerbated, exacerbated those divisions um, a a lot. Uh, And this, you know, the divide in the community lasted. It lasted for generations. um, I mean, during in the context of the lawsuit, um, you know, uh, Catholics, uh, Catholics wouldn't shop. So Lydia Zeller's husband owned the general store in Dixon and Catholics would no longer shop at his store. They boycotted his store. Uh, Lydia Zellers said that she received death threats. I mean it was it was just really really nasty. Um and those divisions lasted for a long time um and in fact they, they had um, and this is I just mentioned this briefly in the epilogue but uh, in 1999 which was obviously what 50 years after the lawsuit um there was actually a reconciliation ceremony that took place in Dixon um, that where Catholic local Catholic leaders local Protestant leaders Uh, The Archbishop of Santa Fe, um, the leader of the uh, local Presbyterian community, they all got together in Dixon. Um, They invited a bunch of the nuns that had taught in the schools and held a reconciliation ceremony, which was a sort of way of, of sort of demonstrating that 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 finally these these divisions had sort of been mended after after several generations.
0: Well, excellent. Well, we've already taken a lot of your time uh talking about this wonderful book that I and there's a I mean we this is only an hour listeners so uh you know there's a lot more depth than we could get into so we hope you'll go out and buy it. Mm-hmm. But we'd like to take a little bit more of your time and ask you what are you working on now?
1: <laughs> um so I'm working on a couple of projects. Um I am uh when I uh several colleagues of um, and and Myself um, at the American Academy of Religion meeting this past fall, we uh, put together a roundtable that was actually on um, on protests against the Catholic Church. Uh, We were looking at sort of social liberation protests that have um, that have been directed against the Catholic Church in the 20th and 21st centuries. And we uh, we were using these protests to sort of think about it's actually not unrelated to, to the conversation we've been having today, but to sort of think about what public Catholicism looks like. And to sort of think about the ways in which public Catholicism um, finds its way into um, social, political arenas of arenas of of the arena of politics, the arena of health, of medicine, um, different parts of sort of American society and culture that um, that sort of involve um, that involve Catholic and non-Catholic citizens. And so um, so we're looking at. So, yeah, so we're looking at uh, we're looking at protests, um, indigenous protests um, that have been sort of directed at the U.S. Catholic Church um, AIDS activists protesting the Catholic Church, uh, feminists, things like that. And um, we're moving toward uh, moving toward work on an edited volume on that topic. So uh, we've just sort of uh, began, begun conversation. There are several of us working on it, begun conversation around an edited volume on that topic. Um, So that's one thing that I've been working on. Uh, The other thing that I'm working on, and this is, again, set in New Mexico, um, but I have been doing a little bit of initial work on um, actually Catholic sisters again in New Mexico, but not Catholic sisters involved in the education system, uh, rather Catholic sisters that were involved in uh, the medical, uh, the sort of medical field in New Mexico, and in particular um, Catholic sisters that worked as uh, uh, midwives, obstetricians and midwives uh, to Uh, rural, again, rural Hispanic communities in New Mexico uh, through the first half in the middle of the 20th century. Um, And I'm thinking about I'm thinking about in particular um, ways in which their uh, their sort of Catholic understandings of uh, reproductive health, of um, pregnancy, of childbirth, um, influenced the secular uh, sort of secular field of medicine uh, in the borderlands and in the southwest started a little bit of work on that, um, but I'll be doing some research on that over the summer uh, and uh, probably writing, you know, an article or a book chapter in that regard.
0: Thanks. Yeah, those sound like really fascinating projects. Well, thank you again so much for taking time to speak with us today. Sure, sure.
1: My pleasure. I really enjoyed it.
0: Great. Right, well, you have a great day.
1: Okay. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: This has been the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Franklin Roush of Lander University, the host of the channel. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you'll come by and listen again soon.